All right, today we'll be getting the big picture of the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes comes after Psalms and Proverbs, and then we come to Ecclesiastes. Let me ask you this question. What do you think will make you happy? What do you think will make you happy? Oh, many people have all sorts of ideas on that question, don't they? For me, I'll just kind of give you a little, little bit about me. For me, sports was, was a big issue for me, uh, particularly when I was a teenager. Uh, I, would, I, I used to say that sports was my God, but in reality, I'm, I was my own God. It was sports that was, was accomplishing the goal of me being God. Does, does that make sense? Uh, and the reality is, uh, I, I, I never, I never found happiness in sports, even though I kept trying. <laughs> I was a fool, but I kept trying. And the reality is, there's always someone better than you, or eventually you, you know, you get old and you, you're no longer as good as you used to be. Or, uh, in my case, God broke my ankle <laughs> uh, during a soccer game to get my attention. He showed me the stupidity of of bowing down before the God of sports. Some people try to seek friends, and they think friends, well, you know, if I have, I have all these friends, then I'll be happy. But the reality is friends move on, friends die, friends change, you change. And I don't really use Facebook myself, but I notice, uh, I notice my friends on Facebook have definitely changed. <laughs> people I grew up with, so to speak, you know. You know, I was like, wow, he's that bald. Oh, wow, or, you know, that person... Is, you know, there's something about them that, you know, we all change. We, we, we grow away from each other. The people you thought used to be so important to you are no, you know, you never even talk to them anymore. For me, girls used to be incredibly important. Fortunately, I love one girl. I don't have to go around trying to seek the approval of all kinds of girls. And I thought, man, if I, if I, if I just, if I, have, if I have some girls or a girl, then, you know, then I can have happiness. Well... What a silly idea that is. And, and funny enough, the book of Ecclesiastes shows us the silliness of seeking after these sort of things. Oh, then, then some people, they, they, you know, they, they try to find happiness in sex. Our society is sex crazy. And there's even a guy in the Bible who found out, well, that doesn't satisfy. You might remember David's son took his own sister. He was consumed with lust, and then when he had his way... He, didn't satisfy him. Well, some people, they, they think, well, you know, if I have this house, then I'll be satisfied and, and then I'll have happiness. Really? How, how many rich people do you know who are really happy? I mean, people who win lotto, they're, they're one of the worst ones a lot of times who end up committing suicide. They, everybody wants their money. I remember my wife and I, the shack, we, we called it a shack, the, the house we first had when we were married. It was. It was a shack. Uh, but you know what? We, we didn't really care that much. I mean, the, we, we had ice on the, on the inside of the walls in the wintertime. You know, and this, this place, we had to put out, I don't know how many buckets when it rained. And we had mice everywhere and, uh, I don't know, you know, carpenter beetles and, and bumblebees and all sorts of things infesting that place. It was, it was a wreck. It, it, it was a shack. It wasn't even meant to be built as a house. It was just a, a lean-to that someone put on the side of their, their garage. But you know what? That we were we were 
happy and content. Well, some people, some people seek happiness in ministry. They think, well, hey, I just need to be fulfilled, and they and they they seek their fulfillment in life from ministry. Some people seek it in money. And we could keep going on with the list of various things that people try to seek their happiness in, but the Bible tells us you're not going to find happiness in any of those things. All these things never satisfy someone's soul. Now, of course, my experience is nothing new. I mean, some of those things may even resound in your own heart. And what we have here in the book of Ecclesiastes is a book of Scripture, an entire book that clearly shows the futility of life. Life is futile. It's vanity is one of the key words you'll find here. So what I want to ask you to do now is jump in the airplane with me, and we're going to fly up to a couple thousand feet and fly over this forest called Ecclesiastes and get the bird's eye view of this wonderful book. So is life worth living? Do you think life's worth living? In order to answer that haunting question, you need to understand there is some measure of success that is needed. To a certain degree, uh, success is in the eye of the beholder. After all, think about this for a moment. Economists call job creation a success. Shareholders call rising profits a success. Uh, You know, if you get a pay rise at work, many people consider that success. So for you, success may be having an honest friend. Success for you might be a new job or a pay rise or a different place to live or kind of stepping up the corporate ladder or whatever that is. Uh, Or it might be just losing a few kilos. Might be having children. Who knows? Success, though, is a topic addressed often in the middle section of our Bible in this wisdom literature in the the Old Testament here. And, of course, it begins in Job and ends in the Song of Solomon. So the book of Ecclesiastes offers wisdom for people who have success. Whoever wrote this book was a successful person, very successful person. And so particularly it is for individuals who've gotten what they wanted out of life, or at least what they thought they had wanted out of life, and then, and then they come toward the end and find that there's, there's something missing. They thought they had what they wanted, and then they found, it, found life wanting. So we have the book of Ecclesiastes, 12 chapters. A short prologue begins this book. And then there's a very short epilogue that ends the book. And then everything in between these chapters here is one long monologue from someone who calls himself the preacher or teacher. Nobody really seems to know for sure who this particular preacher or teacher is. Now, I have, I have an opinion. You, you may have an opinion. Usually the opinion is Solomon. But he's not really named in the book, so... Uh, most people are, have at least some doubt of who the, who the human writer of this book is. But at least this much we know. We know the Holy Spirit is the author of Scripture. So let's find out what the Spirit says in this wonderful little book. Now, I've got a series of questions, and we'll proceed to answer those questions as we go through this book. But my first question is this, because this book talks about this. What is meaninglessness? What is meaninglessness? 
The preacher's basic message here is about vanity. That's one of the key words. Vanity, the idea is futility or meaninglessness. And he begins in the second verse of this book. Look, look, look what it says in the, in the second verse. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Well, that's an interesting way to start your book. And then we come to verse 14. Look what he says in verse 14. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. So what does the word vanity mean? Because you see that word a lot in this book. Vanity means something that is considered futile, worthless, or empty of significance. And that's why I like the word meaninglessness. And so what exactly does the preacher say that qualifies as meaninglessness? What is, what is he qualifying as something that is vanity or futile? Well, he says everything. Everything is futile. Everything is meaningless. Let's look at some specific things he mentions in this book. Number one, he talks about some obvious things. There are some obvious things that we don't really need to debate. Most people know these things are meaningless. Uh, he says that many dreams and many words are meaningless. Look at chapter 5. Have your fingers ready. Okay? There's a lot of scriptures I want you to put your eyeballs on. Okay? Get your fingers ready to flip through the pages here. Okay? So chapter 5, verse 7. Chapter 5, verse 7 says, when, or, For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. Okay? So many words and dreams are meaningless. Number 2. Your appetite. <laughs> a wandering appetite is meaningless. Look at chapter 6, verse 9. Chapter 6, verse 9. Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and striving after wind. And think about it. If you eat something and think, hey, you know, if I just go to that, if I go to that restaurant and get that awesome meal, then I'm going to be satisfied. Really? Does that ever happen? What happens? A couple hours later, you're hungry and you want to eat again, right? So it's meaningless. Laughter of fools is meaningless. Look at chapter 7, verse 6. Chapter 7, verse 6. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. It's meaningless for righteous men to get what the wicked deserve. Look at chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse 14. So when righteous get what the wicked deserve, it's, it's vanity. Chapter 8, verse 14 says, There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And then he goes on to say, then it's also meaningless for wicked people to get what righteous people deserve. Look at verse 14. There are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. So these are some obvious things. So what is meaningless? Number two, there's questionable things that are also meaningless. And so here the preacher is turning his critical gaze, if you will, upon things that might seem less obvious or less obviously empty or wrong to us. These questionable or neutral things he 
condemns as utterly vain, though, number one, is pleasure. Pleasure is the first questionable thing that he examines here. Look at chapter 2. Chapter 2. Pleasure, he says, is vanity. It's meaningless. Chapter 2, verse 1, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. It was empty. It's futile. It was meaningless. And so in the verses that follow here in this chapter, chapter 2, he's exploring the emptiness and the worthlessness of pleasure. As I said, many people think this is Solomon. Okay? Solomon's one of the richest guys who's ever lived. He's also one of the wisest guys who ever lived, and at the same time, one of the most foolish guys who ever lived. And he's, 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 he's got the whole package. And he's a king. If, if he's the writer here, just think about all the pleasures he had. And he goes on, and he's, if it's him, look at some of the stuff mentioned here. Chapter 2, verse 2. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves. And I had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, many concubines and the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done. And the toil I had expanded in doing it. And behold, what is he, what's the conclusion? All was vanity, futile, meaningless, worthless, and it was striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. (laughs) Pleasure is futile. Number two, popularity is meaningless. Popularity, or the public approval here is the second questionable thing that is to be dismissed as meaningless. Look at chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 13. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne. Through his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun along with that youth who was to stand in the king's palace. There was no end of all the people. Of all whom he led, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. 
What episode is he referring to here? Well, we don't know, but perhaps he's thinking about the discontentment of the people of Israel that they began to feel when the line of David and the, uh, the, the ensuing rebellion that, that divided the nation, when, when that took place, maybe. Maybe that's what he's referring to. Remember, the kingdom of Israel was, ended up being divided into the north and the south. So whatever the preacher had in mind, his point is clear. Public is fickle. The public is fickle. Their affections should not be overvalued or pursued. That's what he's saying. People's affections should not be overvalued or pursued. Don't don't seek it. Popularity is a passing thing. The public's going to change their mind or you're going to die. It's all meaningless. What else is meaningless? Number three, good things are meaningless. Even good things are meaningless, he says here. So, so yes, my friends, listen closely. The preacher's charge here extends even to things that we would call good. And these, frankly, are the passages that most disturb me, the good things. So what good things is he talking about? Well, turn to chapter 11. Turn to chapter 11, and we see here that youth and vigor are meaningless. Youth and vigor are meaningless. Chapter 11, verse 10. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Youth and the dawn of your life are vanity. Next, the preacher denounces the meaningless, the very thing that most people give their lives for. One of those things other than sleep we give the most time for is work. Work, as well as the wealth and the, and the achievements, by the way, that work, work brings to us. Look at chapter 2, verse 11. We already read this, but let's read it again. Chapter 2, verse 11. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I ex- expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. After all, he asked the question in chapter 1, verse 3. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? What do you gain? Well, it's something for you to ponder and consider. So I hope you can see the point here. All that your hands can do and all the toil that you can accomplish is meaningless. It's vanity. That's what he's saying. Well, how does the preacher respond to this discovery? How does he respond? Look at chapter 2. How does the preacher respond to all this meaninglessness? Chapter 2, verse 17. He says, So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after wind. By the way, you might be feeling at this point in the message, this is kind of depressing. <laughs> well, I, I, will, I will end on a good note, in case you're wondering, all right? I'll end on a good note, but you need to get the message of the book of Ecclesiastes first, okay? What your hands can do and all the toilet you, you can accomplish is meaningless. And so he responds by just hating his life. 
Now think about this image for a moment here. It's an interesting image. We've read it several times. Chasing after wind. You ever tried to do that? You ever chased wind? Most people don't do that, right? Why why do we not chase wind? Because we know it's it's a waste of time. You, You can't chase something that you can't see, right? You don't see wind. You see effects of wind, but you don't see wind, and so it's kind of hard to chase it. It's futile. It's a waste of time. Well, that's a, that's a great picture of pointlessness, isn't it? Uh, I mean, that, that, that makes what my, dog, what my dog does sometimes actually look like there's meaning to what my dog does. And to get, give you my perspective here, let me under, you need to understand something about my dog. My dog likes to chase her tail. You ever seen a dog do that? They continually go in a circle chasing their tail. Well, sometimes she actually gets her tail. She'll actually get it and start chewing on her tail. Anyway, dogs are strange sometimes, aren't they? So, chasing after wind, that's pointless. But, I mean, that, that, that even makes what my dog does look like the dog has purpose and intelligence, as silly as it looks. So why is our work chasing after wind, you might ask? Well, whatever is amassed, whatever you earn as a result of work, has to be given away. It's enjoyed by other people. Uh, most of, you think about it, most of your money is given to government anyway, in your taxes, right? Yeah, your, your tax at the fuel pump, your GST, you know, your national tax, the city council, and the list goes on and on, right? They're, they're just, most of our money goes to pay taxes, so about half the year you end up working for government and city council and so forth. And the rest you end up giving away to the power company and you know, so forth, right? You get the point? It's, it's meaningless, Look at chapter 2, verse 18. He says, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. Rich people don't get to take it with them, do they? No rich man ever gets to take their wealth with them. And look at verse 19. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. Now imagine, these, imagine these rich people and their children. If, if their children inherit their wealth, you know, how are they going to know? Is the person going to be a fool or is he going to use it wisely? How do you know? You don't. Verse 20. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What is a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. What else is meaningless? Well, we've seen, number number one, the youth and vigor is meaningless. Work is meaningless. Number three is that the love of money is also meaningless. The love of money is meaningless. Look at chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 10. Chapter 5, verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. It's pointless. It's worthless. It's meaningless. It's futile. You get the point? 
So in general here, the realities of this world that we live in mean that creating wealth will never be fulfilling. It's never going to fulfill you. And there's two reasons for this reality. Number one, you will not have the family to leave it to. You're not going to have the family to leave it to. Look at chapter 4, verse 8. Chapter 4, verse 8. He says, One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, From whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Second of all, you're going to run out of time to enjoy it. You're going to run out of time to enjoy it. <laughs> Look at chapter 6. In chapter 6, uh, the preacher says, There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them. But a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It's like the pharaohs of Egypt who thought they could take all their wealth with them and they got all that stuff buried with them in the tomb, right? How many of them got to take all the wealth with them? Most of them had tomb robbers come in and take all their stuff, right? They were dead and gone. All their gold and everything's still there. It's worthless. Well, so far we've covered the pursuits of our Monday to Friday week. So our Monday to Friday has been covered pretty much, but, and, and maybe even our Saturdays for some of us. But most shocking of all here is, is what this preacher asserts what we Christians pursue on our Sundays. Even what we pursue on our Sundays, he said, is meaningless. So number four, we see here the preacher says that wisdom is meaningless. Wisdom, even wisdom, he says, is meaningless. Look at chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 17. Chapter 1, verse 17, he says, And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. Wisdom is meaningless. I'm not going to take the time to explain that, but that's what he says. Number 5, the future is meaningless. Even the future is Meaningless here. Look at chapter 11. Chapter 11, verse 7. Chapter 11, verse 7. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Even the future is meaningless. So if you answered the question that I asked at the beginning, did you answer that question? What does the preacher mean by everything? What does the preacher mean by everything? Well, he seems to mean everything. If he says everything, he seems to mean everything, right? He's pretty much covered the whole gamut. I mean, his 12-chapter monologue here concludes with these words in chapter 12, verse 8. He says, Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. So I wonder if you identify with what the preacher is saying here. Can you identify? 
I hope you don't think that this is one of those sermons for some other person, right? <laughs> Sometimes we do that, right? Oh, that's that's nice, nice sermon, preacher. Man, I hope that person would, man, or, you know, I wish that, I wish so-and-so was here to hear that. They really needed that. Don't be thinking that, okay? This sermon is for you. In fact, one author wrote this, it's on the screen, quote, Whoever has dreamed great dreams in his youth and seen the vision flee or has loved and lost or has beaten barehanded at the fortress of injustice and come back bleeding and broken has passed the preacher's door and tarried a while beneath the shadow of his roof. End quote. My friend, that's you. That's you. I'm talking about you. So there's two questions that need to be answered at this point. Okay? First of all, We haven't answered, why does he say that everything is meaningless? And number two, we will also answer the question of, how should we respond? How should we respond? So let's look at that first one there. Why is everything meaningless? Why is the preacher saying everything is meaningless? Well, look at chapter 1. You'll get a clue here in chapter 1. And a clue is given very on here in the book, of course. Look at chapter 1. Verse 11, why is everything meaningless? Look, look what the Spirit says here. He says, there is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of latter things yet to be among those who come after. Now, did you get it here? No, maybe you didn't get it. So, the meaningless of everything has something to do with your ability, or I should say, our inability to remember anything. Have you noticed as you get older, you start forgetting things that you, maybe you didn't forget as you were younger? That's just the way it works. So regardless of your wealth, your splendor, accomplishments, you're going to be forgotten. One day you're going to be forgotten if the Lord tarries. So the prospect of not being re- remembered here is something that can discourage you. It, it, it discourages a lot of people. They want to be remembered And so in the next passage, we come to the real culprit behind meaninglessness here. Look at uh, chapter 2. And I want you to see if you can notice what it is. Here's the real culprit behind meaninglessness. Look at chapter 2, verse 13. 2, verse 13. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten how the wise dies just like the fool. Then he says again there, so I hated life. Does that help answer the question for you? Why are people forgotten? Why are people forgotten? Well, the answer is because we die. All people die. Death frustrates our hopes. Death frustrates and foils our plans. That's why so many people went around 
you know, destroying themselves and wasting a lot of wealth seeking the fountain of youth or some, something that would make them live forever. So how should we respond? How should we respond? Well, to answer that question, we need to notice a phrase that occurs 28 times in this short book. 28 times there's a phrase, and you can see this phrase in chapter 1. There's an example here in chapter 1, verse 14. See if you can figure out what the phrase is. Chapter 1, verse 14. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. There's a key phrase there, and the phrase is this, under the sun. Under the sun. It's a key phrase. It it refers to life as viewed entirely from the perspective of this earth. It's an earthly perspective. In other words, what I'm saying is this. It refers to life considered apart from God. It's life considered apart from God. And of course, such a limited life is meaningless. That's what the the, the Word of God is saying here. Life without God is meaningless. Anything you do under the sun, anything you do without God is meaningless. So my friend, you can see how the preacher's honesty about sin and the fall and its consequences actually helps us understand why the world is like it is. And then how, how are we going to respond to it? How are we going to respond to this world in the way it is? Well, here's the point, my friend. This world is a bad place for your final investment. It's a bad place for your final investment. You can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. That's not original with me. I think Randy Elkhorn came up with that. You can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. So this this world is a bad place for your final investment. It's not made for that. There's more to life than what we find under the sun. God's not made us to be satisfied in this world without Him. He's designed us to want Him. It's exactly what the preacher says in chapter 3, verse 11. Look at chapter 3, verse 11. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, He has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning of the end. Notice that phrase, God has put eternity into man's heart. God's done that. God set eternity in our hearts. And, and, and so our lives are lived out under the sun, of course. You live your life on this earth, under the sun. But our heart's desires should, and they are, stretched beyond this world. That's why people are never satisfied with the things of this life. They're never satisfied. It, it's, it's the next rush of whatever it is. So eternity goes beyond the sphere of what is under the sun. So, you say, well, man, this this almost sounds like a godless book, and some have called it that. But even in the midst of this meaninglessness, there is hope. There is hope even in the midst of meaninglessness. Look at chapter 12. Chapter 12. You probably knew this was coming, right? You know how the book ends, I hope. Look how the book ends. The very last words of this book are precious. Look at chapter 12, verse 13. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. 
For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So these verses bring us to the ultimate message of this book then, don't they? Are you ready to hear it though? Are you ready to hear these words? Here's here's what you need to hear. It's only with God do we have a clear and true perspective that gives meaning to life. It's only with God you're going to find meaning in life. You leave God out, you ignore God, then you're not going to have the right perspective. You're not going to have a clear perspective. For life to have meaning, we need what lies beyond this life. You can't give meaning to your own life. God is the one who gives meaning to life. You're created by someone who is bigger and more powerful than you are. He has great purposes for you. He has an end as well. He has goals and purpose. And it's only from Him that we can learn meaning and truth. And so that really begs a question then, doesn't it? When we view our lives from God's perspective, what do we see? What do you see when you see your life from God's perspective? What do you see? What do you see when you adopt the preacher's own God-centered perspective here that we, we just read, the last two verses? Well, number one, we see our rebellion against God. You should see your rebellion against God because it says, here's the end of the matter. Fear God and keep His commandments for this is the whole duty of man. How you doing? How you doing? Well, the answer is we've all, we've all sinned against God. And so, we, we need to see our rebellion against God. And this becomes evident as soon as we stop measuring success from our own vantage point. You know, your vantage point changes a lot of things, doesn't it? And so, as long as so when we start changing our vantage point from, from us and then start using God's standard, whoa, that really changes things. Well, you might ask then, well, what are God's standards? Well, you can start with the Ten Commandments as, as a starting point. Look, look at the, the commands of Scripture. What do we see from God's perspective when, when we look at Scripture? That's His perspective. We need to view our life and, uh, from that perspective. So, we see our rebellion against God. Number two, we see the promise of judgment as well. There's a promise of judgment that our rebellion requires. Because notice God says He is going to bring, in verse 14 there, He's going to bring every deed into judgment. Every secret thing. Whether it was good or evil. Everything. Number three, God is not only holy. You need to understand He is loving. He's given us His Son to die on the cross. He sent His Son to this earth. He fulfilled the law, lived the perfect life, died the perfect death, rose again. He is now in heaven. He's at the Father's right hand. He took upon Himself God's judgment. That's what propitiation means. He's the wrath absorber. He, he, He took the brunt of God's wrath. It's like... It's like someone shooting a bullet at you. The bullet's meant for you. The bullet's coming from your heart. The bullet's going to kill you. And someone jumps in front and takes the bullet that you deserved. That's what Jesus did, but in a far greater way. So God's holy. He's loving as well. And so He sent His Son to bear that wrath, to bear the penalty. 
And so everyone who repents of their sin and puts their belief, their faith, and their trust in God's Son and believes in the finished work can be forgiven. Here's my last question for you. Is futility final? Is futility final? Is meaninglessness, vanity final? And the answer is absolutely not, my friend. Okay? I said I was going to end on a good note. Here, let me, let me end on a good note. All right? Ecclesiastes, you need to understand something here. Ecclesiastes was never meant to be a substitute for the whole Bible. It is a book of wisdom, yes. But if, if all you had was the book of Ecclesiastes, you'd be missing a lot, wouldn't you? Well, for one thing, it, it, you, don't, you don't get the gospel. Right? Ecclesiastes is never meant to be a substitute for the whole Bible. To know the truth of God, you need God's full revelation. And by God's full revelation, I mean the entire Bible. God's given us His whole Word. and The whole Word is sufficient, but Ecclesiastes by itself is not sufficient. Only Jesus Christ assures us that there is something beyond the Son. There is something beyond the grave. So in that sense, the good news that we as Christians have to share is the key to get beyond the sun. That's one of the themes of Ecclesiastes, remember? Everything under the sun is vanity. So we got to get beyond the sun then, don't we? So Christ came to live and die and rise again in order to bring us forgiveness. Why did he need to do that? Because your greatest problem is sin. My friend, your greatest problem, listen, is not poverty, is not health, it's not relationship issues or whatever whatever you think your greatest problem is, is if it's anything other than sin then you're wrong we need a restored relationship with god my, my my friend understand this because of your sin your relationship with god was destroyed until you become a believer then you're no longer an enmity between you and god so your sin separates you from your god and so you need God to deal with that sin. And so the good news is the key to getting beyond and over the sun and, and to gaining life that is full of meaning and life that has purpose and life the way God intended it for you. My friend, there is an afterlife. And the afterlife is not something that you can just simply push aside. Don't just simply push the afterlife aside and, 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 and hope that I don't know, something good's going to happen to you. Don't do that. That is, that is a lie of Satan in this world. There is an afterlife. And the afterlife isn't something you can just ignore or, or, or kind, of, kind of squelch and suppress. My friend, it's only through Jesus Christ that we see the death of death. It's only through Jesus Christ that there is birth in this new life where you can be born again and where you can have a life that will endure forever. In his presence. Look at 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That's talking about salvation. God transforms you into this new creation, he prepares you so that you can, you can actually be in his presence. But there is meaning to life. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58 here. 
Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. But on the other side of that is, if, if you labor not in the Lord, then your labor is in vain. It is meaningless. It's pointless. It's futile. So make sure your labor is in the Lord. Now, by the way, you can do that in secular work, okay? Don't, don't, don't fall into this false belief that you have to be a pastor or a missionary or some Christian school teacher or, I don't know, something like that, to, to think that your labor is actually in the Lord. That is not the case. Wherever God puts you, you need to glorify Him in that work that He's put you in. Whatever that is. Okay? You can glorify Him in any work as long as it's not illegal or unbiblical or immoral. Okay? So we're going to find meaning only when meaning extends beyond this life, when meaning extends beyond this world. That's where you find meaning. Only eternity with God makes a life successful. Only eternity with God makes life worth living. Why why do you think so many people commit suicide? New Zealand's got one of the worst teen suicide rates in the world. Why do people do that? Well, number one, they, they love themselves too much. That's part of the problem. They don't know God. If they did know God, they wouldn't be doing that, would they? So, they think life is not worth living, so I might as well end it. But life does have purpose. God made you in His image. He planted you here. He created you. He has given you purpose and meaning. And it's only an eternity with God that's going to make your life successful and worth living. Well, Where are you going to find that? Where are you going to find that? How how are you going to have a life that is successful and worth living? Well, it starts with Christ, my friend. It starts with Christ. Is your life Christ? Is Jesus your life, as we sang about earlier? Jesus is my life. Is he yours? Without Christ, I have nothing. The Bible says, Jesus said, you can gain the whole world and you lose your soul what does it profit you? It profits you nothing if you gain the whole world and lose your soul. Without Christ, we're nothing. With Christ, we have everything we need, don't we? We have life, we have, we have purpose, we have meaning, we have satisfaction, we have happiness and joy and, and all the other things, wonderful rights and privileges that come with being in Christ. We find meaning only in Christ. So, you're not going to see Christ in this book, per se. But what, what the, the, the wisdom literature and a book like this should do is drive you to the one who is life and happiness and peace and truth.